welcome to the Cary Church Podcast. For more information regarding Cary Church, visit www.cary.asn.au. Our reading from God's Word this morning begins in Genesis chapter 21. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him, and Isaac means he laughs. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And then across to chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father? Yes, my son? Abraham replied, The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham! Abraham, here I am, he replied. Don't lay a hand on the boy, he said. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, 
the Lord will provide. And to this day it's said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear to myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. Thanks, John. Thanks for that reading from that uh, very challenging, uh, familiar passage, but very challenging one. If you don't know me, I'm Brian Harris, service pastor at large here at Kerry, and good to be with you today. I don't know if you grew up in an era where it was fairly common to speak about the cost of following Jesus. It's, for whatever reason, it's something we don't talk about quite so much today, um, but certainly in my teenage years, and I can remember the pastor of the church where I went to in those years, Pastor Mac, there was barely a sermon went by where he wouldn't talk about the fact that to be a Christian was not an easy thing, that you had to take up your cross and you had to follow Jesus, that you had to consider well, what, what challenges there might be and what difficulties there might be in following Jesus. And it made sense to me. I can remember perhaps one of my first challenges when it became clear that I was, uh, to my family who were not Christian, uh, that I was fairly serious about following Jesus and my sisters who were afraid that I was becoming a religious fanatic, uh, a little bit of a bush Baptist they used to call me, you're going to be a bush Baptist or something like that. And, uh, and so my sister said, well, if you're really serious about following Jesus, you would give up half of your pocket money and you would give it away to worthy causes. And... Uh, and she said, and you'd have to do that for at least six months. And uh, I did. Uh, my sister found that absolutely staggering. She, she could barely believe it. I mean, she, she was buying makeup the whole time and was in the age where, where seven singles were coming out. And so far as she was concerned, her allowance was never nearly enough. But I gave half of my allowance to underground evangelism, an organization working with the persecuted church. And I thought that that was rather an exciting thing to be able to do. Because truth to tell, I wasn't interested in buying makeup and seven singles did absolutely nothing for me. And frankly, it didn't seem that much of a sacrifice at all. Much more challenging was when our local church, which had a ministry and the local beachfront, they used to go down and they used to preach to all the pastors by in South Beach and Durban. Uh, and, and I've got to admit, that kind of uh, outdoor evangelism preaching to people who are not wanting to listen uh, didn't excite me enormously, and I, I thought that it seemed a little kind of in your face. But nevertheless, uh, they invited me one day to come along and to preach and to share. And I really wanted to get out of it. I like really, really, really didn't feel comfortable with doing this. And particularly because I knew that, you know, most of my mates from school would be at the beachfront. I mean, everyone spent all their time there. And I thought, you know, what's going to happen if I suddenly stand up and preach? There are going to be so many people there who will know me. I will never, ever live this down. 
But Pastor Max's words were kind of just ringing in my ears. You know, it costs something to follow Jesus. And if this is the cost of following Jesus, that everyone thinks that you're absolutely insane, well, so be it. And so I did, and I went. And oh my, it was awkward. <laughs> it was very awkward. I got there, and my heart just sunk because there were a whole lot of people from my class they didn't know I was going to be there. They're just there at the beachfront, as people tended to be. And I had to stand up to preach, and I did. And I thought that I would never, ever live this down, because uh, the convention in our days was really, if someone did something uh, you know, slightly odd or, or ludicrous, then you would just ridicule them forever. Uh, but they didn't actually say a word to me, and I realized that that meant that actually that I wasn't in the category of doing something odd. I'd done something so seriously weird that it was beyond the pale. I mean, you did something that bad, then people just had a stunned silence, and they didn't know how to react, and kind of diplomatic silence was the only way to react, so they never said a word about it. Uh, but, but there you go. These were kind of challenges for me in my early faith formation years. You know, will you give up half your pocket money? Will you, uh, will you, you know, speak for Jesus on, on the beachfront? And, and looking back, I've got to say that, that in their own way, they were really helpfully formative. They, they, they helped to settle in my mind where my priorities lay, and they helped to, to lock in. I'm, I'm not sure they were the most important things to do. Uh, I'm not sure that you could theologically justify them being necessary. But, but in terms of practical things that were actually helpful in my journey of faith, they just sealed the deal for me. And they, they, they made it clear to me that actually I was a Jesus follower, and, and that was that. But as we read this passage today, it moves really from that, that category of, of difficult things that God might ask us to do to impossible things that God might ask us to do. And, and it raises the question, what do you do when God asks you to do the impossible? Because, because this one does feel impossible, doesn't it? I mean, God goes to Abraham and says to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, this son whom you love, and offer him as a burnt sacrifice to me. And, and, and Abraham, as he hears that, you, you, you can just imagine what goes through his mind. We would just think impossible. Now, now if you listen to this passage from a 21st century perspective, you hear it as a command that comes to someone to, to kill their child. And you, you naturally just respond and say, well, that's inappropriate, and that's not legal, and that's not going to happen, and that's not right. And, and you, you think like that because, because we're 21st century people. But this is not a 21st century passage. This is taking place roughly 2,100 years before Christ. It's well over 4,000 years ago. And in the world in which Abraham lived... It's a Canaanite world. And in the, the, the world of, of Canaanites, uh, and in terms of their religion, which involved the worship of many gods, including Baal, child sacrifice was actually quite, quite common. And so when Abraham hears this call, and, and let's remember, he was the founder of Judaism, the founder of it, but there was no, no faith that he was going into. So, so the faith that he goes into, he's, he's kind of just figuring out what it's all about. And the only models that he's got to look at are the models of those who are around him. So he looks at the faiths around him, and he looks at the Canaanites, and actually, if you were a Canaanite, you would sacrifice your children because you would believe that that would be a way that you would prove that you really were devoted 
and that you really were committed to your God. You, you, you would say, what is the most precious thing that I have and how can I prove to the gods that I really, really love them? And the Canaanites would say, well, if you're really serious, if you really want to prove this, then you will sacrifice one of your children and the gods will be impressed and, and the gods will then bless you. So, so that was the thinking that Abraham would have had in his background. And, and as Abraham hears God saying to him, now you must take your son, your son Isaac, your only son, your son whom you love, and you must kill him. Abraham is hearing it with that kind of backdrop and that kind of awareness. This is happening in the society around him. And he would have thought, oh no, I mean, I, I, I promised to follow this God who spoke to me, and, and apparently this is what's required of people who follow God. But, but then Abraham would have gone a little further, and he would have done, I guess, what we would do as well. And he would say, but this doesn't really make sense, because I have been told, number one, that Isaac is this child of promise, and I know that, 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 that God gave me Isaac as, as a miracle child because I'm 100 and Sarah's 90 and frankly that just doesn't happen. So, so this clearly is a child of promise. And, and what's more, God has made another promise to me. God has promised that I will be the father of nations and that, that that's going to happen through Isaac. So how can Isaac, how can I be the father of nations and that happen through Isaac if Isaac is dead? That, that doesn't make any sense at all. And, and what's more, I'm told that not only will I be the father of nations, but that all the nations in the world will be blessed because of me and because of Isaac, my son. Now, now how will that happen if Isaac doesn't live and doesn't have any children of his own? It, it, it's bizarre. It makes no sense whatsoever. And, and we're told in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 29, that as Abraham thinks this through, he comes to the point where he, he reckons that somehow Isaac will be raised from the dead. And so if you look at Hebrews eleven nineteen, which reflects on the incident, it tells us, and I'm reading from the verse, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. So as, as Abraham decides that he will agree with this commission, he does so somehow trusting that God will raise Isaac from the dead. He doesn't know how, but then he didn't know how Isaac was going to be born in the first place. And somehow his faith extends this long journey to think that somehow resurrection must be possible. But we're running a little ahead of ourselves. Let's actually say, so what do you do when God asks the impossible? What do you do when God asks the impossible? And, and, and let's follow the account because this is the impossible ask that God makes. Let, let's firstly put it into its backdrop. So, so let's look first of all at the birth of Isaac. If you've got your Bibles, uh, Genesis chapter 21. Genesis 21. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abram in his old age. His old age, 100, Sarah was 90. At the very time God had promised him. Now, now you would have heard that I emphasized the words, as he had said, what he had promised, God had promised him. Because the emphasis in terms of the birth of Isaac is God promised something. And so it came about. God promised something, and so it came about. Now, 
Now, we might look at the birth of Isaac and think, you know, well, you know, what happened was impossible. It was the birth of a child way beyond childbearing years. It would require a miracle, and we know that miracles don't happen, but I suppose God can sometimes do a miracle. The emphasis on the passage is not the, whoa, this is incredible, a child was born at this age. That's not actually the emphasis in the passage. The emphasis in the passage is on the faithfulness of God. The emphasis is on God promises something, you can bank on it. God is more than a promise maker, God is a promise keeper. Now, now, now let me say that again, because if you forget everything from today, remember this. God is more than a promise maker, God is a promise keeper. And that's the thrust of what's been said there. It's why it's, it's, why it's repeated three times. Now, 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 what do I mean when I say God is more than a promise maker, God is a promise keeper? Well, well, we know that we live in a world where promises are easy to make. And sometimes they don't mean anything at all. Perhaps you have some worrying medical symptoms. Perhaps you go for some tests. Perhaps you're really worried when you go along to the doctor to get the results of those tests. And a friend comes to you and says, don't worry. I promise you it's going to be okay. You don't need to be so uptight about this. Promise it's going to be okay. And you go and you think, I have a nice friend. My friend is wanting to reassure me. My friend has been kind to me, but my friend has no basis whatsoever for making those promises because they don't know. How do they know what the test is going to show? I mean, it's nice that someone might say that, but that's a promise to reassure, but it doesn't actually mean anything. Then we have the promises of children. I can remember when our children were younger, we quite often went along to the beach for holidays. And uh, we often used to say that, oh, wouldn't it be lovely one day to have a, have a house by the beach? It would just be gorgeous to be able to have this kind of lifestyle forever and forever. It would be great. And Nick, our younger son, would, would say to us repeatedly over and over again, uh, and I must remind him of this, but he said, you know, one day when I'm rich and famous, uh, I promise you, I will have a wonderful mansion by the beach and I will build you a tiny little cottage right next door that you can stay in. And, and he did promise that. And I would love to hold him to it, but I know that that was the promise of a child. And we know that the promises of children don't really mean anything. Prom- promises are easy to make. And we all know about politicians' promises or the promises of salespeople. I mean, they're they kept if it happens to be convenient. Uh, anything gets promised to get you across the line. Uh, promises, they, they, they don't necessarily mean anything at all. But what this passage is wanting to say, and, and let's remember, we, we, we must go back into the situation. So, so we are here, we've got the whole Bible, we know about Jesus, we, we know that God is trustworthy, we, we have all that history to inform us. But Abraham is, is walking from over here, he's walking from way back, he's walking in the dark as it is. And as he gropes his way forward in faith, he's, he's discovering things about God for the first time. And one of the very first things God is wanting to to say to him, to teach him, is, is Abraham, I'm more than just words. It isn't hot air. When I make a promise, I keep a promise. And you can absolutely bank upon it. And it's got nothing to do with how difficult the promise is. And it doesn't really matter if the promise seems impossible. I am a promise keeper, not just a promise maker. And we need to hold on to that today. Because we need to remember God is not just a promise maker, God is a promise keeper. When God promises, I will, when Jesus promises, I will come back again one day, that's not just a promise made, it's a promise that one day will tick and say, promise kept. 
when we are promised that we'll be raised from the dead. We see that, in fact, God raises Jesus from the dead, but we know that it won't just be Jesus. We know that it will be us as well. It's not just a promise made. It will be a promise kept. And Abraham, when Isaac is born, has that underlined for him. God promised this. God promised this. God promised this. God promised this. That's why it happened. It's irrelevant how difficult it was. It was that God promised it. But then the impossible gets asked. And as you go into Genesis chapter 22, we're told that that day comes when God tests Abraham. God tests Abraham to see, can you trust this? Will you believe this? Because the journey that you have, as is the journey for all of us, is a journey that does require faith. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here am I, he replied. And when Abraham replied, he wouldn't have felt too anxious at that point in time. God had spoken to him several times. And usually it was for something good that was going to happen. But not this time. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain, I will show you. And notice the pacing of the instruction. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. In other words, Abraham, I know exactly what I'm asking of you. Abraham, don't come back to me and say, oh, but God, you, you, I think you're mistaken. Isaac happens to be my son. Or, or Ishmael's now been sent away, so this is now my only son left. Or don't you know how much I love him? Or are you speaking, who are you speaking about? I know. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. I know exactly what I'm asking of you. I know how difficult this is. I know how impossible this seems. But you must go and you must be willing to sacrifice him. And the passage moves on relatively quickly. And as you read it, I want you to notice how restrained it is. It goes on and doesn't talk about Abraham's anxiety or angst or anything. We know that that must have been there. But there is a deliberate choice not to dwell on that. And we're told that very early the next day, Abraham gets up and he goes on this three-day journey. And, and the significance of that three-day journey would have been lost in him, but of course, it's not lost in us. We recognize that this is the three-day journey from death to resurrection. And somehow this has been prefigured for us. And as, as Abraham goes on this three-day journey, he would be wondering, so what is God going to do? And somehow the writer of Hebrews tells us he's, Abraham is just holding on to this idea of there has to be resurrection. There has to be resurrection in the end. And he gets to the point and, and his son Isaac asks him that haunting question, here is the wood, here is the fire, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And, and, and Abraham doesn't know what to do. He can't say to his son Isaac, well, actually, Isaac, that's you. He says, God himself will provide the sacrifice. It's a prophetic word. God himself will provide the sacrifice. And we know the account. It goes devastatingly close to completion. Isaac is bound up. Isaac is put on the altar. Abraham picks up the knife and God says, stop, stop, stop. And Abraham looks around and he sees that there's a, there's a new just caught in the bushes 
And he bursts out, God has provided the lamb for sacrifice. God has provided. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. Jehovah Jireh, God, my provider. God has provided the sacrifice instead. And we're told that God repeats his promise to Abraham. Abraham, you will be the father of many nations, and through you all the nations in the world will be blessed, because you indeed are a man of faith. You indeed are a man of faith. And we look back and we say, so what does this all mean? So what does this all mean? And, and it's usually helpful, particularly when we read the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, it, it's really helpful that we look at it and we say, well, okay, so if we want to say what does it mean, how, how did the original Jews understand it? So, so it's helpful to go to the rabbis and to say, well, well when they speak about this, when, when Jewish rabbis speak about this account, what, what do they say about this passage? And, and they make two key points about this. And the first thing that they would say, if you listen to a Jewish rabbi talking about this passage today, they would say that in this passage, Yahweh decisively introduces himself as the God who is the giver, not the God who is the taker. So, so, so Abraham goes into this thinking that he has to give his son and that he's going to have to make a sacrifice to God. But he actually discovers that it goes the other way around, that we don't give to God, but God gives to us. God is a giver. God is not a taker. And that's the very first point that they would make. And, and the second point they would make is that they're saying, at this point, and it's, it's a slightly more academic point, but it's, a, it's an extraordinarily important one, they would make the point that, that Judaism, right in its early years, was being distinguished from the religion of, of the surrounding nations. And the surrounding nations of Cana practiced child sacrifice. And they practiced child sacrifice, as I say, as an act of devotion to their gods. And, and they did that, in fairness to the Canaanites, it was... was it was a terrible practice, and it's one thoroughly condemned in Scripture. So let's be absolutely clear about this. Uh, both Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, and multiple places in the Bible, you, you find that child sacrifice is absolutely condemned. So, so, so never view this as somehow condoning it. But, but this action, which takes place right at the start of the foundation of Judaism, is saying you are different from the other religions around you. You are not like them. They sacrifice their children to the gods, not so you. And when the nations come to you and say to you, as the Canaanites would say to the Jews, so a devout Canaanite person might come to a Jewish person and say to them, but do you really love your God? I mean, what, what do you do for your God? You, you say you're devoted to your God. Well, prove it. Show that you've done something. What have you actually done? We sacrifice our children. We really love Baal. We are willing to do this. What have you been willing to do? Lest you feel uneasy at this point. Lest you, as a Jewish person, think that somehow your faith is defective because you have never made such a dramatic step. You remember this. You say to them, our God is different from your God. Our God is decisively different from your God. Your God takes and takes and takes from you. Our God is a giver. Our God is Jehovah Yireh. Our God is Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. He is completely different to your God. And it is this distinctive mark of difference that has been made in this passage. And, and, and if you listen to the Jewish rabbis, that then would be the two key things that they would say about it. We're learning that God is a giver, not a taker. And we're learning that, that this faith is different from the other faiths. If you listen to it from a Christian perspective, though, because the story looms large in the Christian story, 
you take it one step further, don't you? And you see that there is a yet deeper significance in the passage. And oh my, how much deeper it is. Because you actually realize God is indeed a giver, not a taker. And you realize that God is a promise keeper, not just a promise maker. And you realize that this faith is very different from the other faiths. And you realize that when you say God is a giver, that that has substance in Jesus. And that actually, in the purposes of God, we are getting just the sketchy picture of Jesus. Jesus going the journey to Calvary. Jesus going to Golgotha. Jesus going to the cross. And it's not Isaac who is sacrificed. And it's not Abraham who gives his son. It is God who in love sees that nothing less than the sacrifice of his own son will bring the world to its senses. That nothing less than the death of his son, Jesus, his only son, Jesus, whom he loves, that nothing less than that will do. And God freely gives his son, and the son freely goes and dies for us. Jehovah Yireh, Jehovah Jireh, God provides. God provides for our sinfulness. God provides for our need. God provides for our forgiveness. And 2,100 years before the cross, this story prefigures that incredible day when Jesus died on the cross for you and for me. And the passage speaks to us as powerfully today as it did back then, saying that God is a giver, not a taker. God gives his life for you. And God promises and doesn't just promise. God doesn't just make promises. God keeps promises. And he promises that if you trust in Jesus, you will find forgiveness. That if you trust in Jesus, you will find resurrection. And as Jesus walks that three-day journey from death to resurrection, just as Abraham did so many years before, we are being shown that actually our forgiveness is possible, that our resurrection is possible. No, not just possible. God doesn't just promise. God keeps the promise, and we can hope for resurrection one day. Let's pray. And in the silence, just thank God. Thank God for his faithfulness. Thank God for forgiveness. Lord, we often think we have to do so much for you, and sometimes you do call us to the lacks of obedience. But, oh Lord, they're so small in comparison with what you've done for us. Help us to trust you. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for the hope of the life everlasting. Amen.